We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith of The Telegraph. Good evening. And on the telephone by ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. And good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the chances of Taiwan reaching its goal of going nuclear-free, a pending ruling on the lifting of a yellow card for illegal fishing practices, caps on tourism numbers, Beijing's latest Orwellian nonsense, and two of Taiwan's cities being ranked as great places for students. But we'll begin with some rather expected news, and that being Taiwan's not being invited to attend this month's World Health Assembly. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen says that her administration will continue its efforts to participate in international organisations and contribute to global health, despite being prevented from attending as an observer. The United States says it will continue to voice its support for Taiwan's participation in the annual meeting of the global health body, and says it's dismayed that China has once again blocked the island from receiving an invitation. The Mainland Affairs Council here in Taiwan has slammed Beijing for denying Taiwan access to the WHA again, saying that China is misrepresenting United Nations resolutions to link them to the One China principle, and Beijing's denying Taiwan representation on political grounds is in clear violation of the World Health Organization's charter. Uh, however, all that happened. Health Minister Chen Shih-jong will still lead a delegation to Geneva, and he'll meet with other delegations on the sidelines of the meeting, and he could deliver a letter of protest to the WHO. While foreign ministry officials say that 16 of Taiwan's 19 diplomatic allies have sent formal letters to the World Health Organization asking that the issue of Taiwan's being denied participation be put on the agenda of the upcoming World Health Assembly. So, predictable Donovan, but I mean, you know, they're doing the same thing again, they're sending a delegation there, so nothing has really changed. And do you think anything will change if they file this letter of protest? Uh, probably not, but I, I do actually feel like the situation overall has changed, not necessarily within the WHO or WHA, but I think how the world perceives Taiwan and China's behavior, I think that's changed. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. I mean, um, it's China kind of looks bad through this whole thing, doesn't it? I mean, when you're, you're talking about health issues and China's making a petty political point um, about an issue that is cross-border, you can't, you know, confine diseases to, to uh, individual countries. So China does not look good on the international stage here. But, you know, Taiwan has to make its point. It has to make it loudly. But in actual fact, behind the scenes, it's my understanding that there's still a lot of cooperation um, between Taiwanese authorities and other countries and, and that, you know, actual work has been done behind the scenes beyond the, the overt political points that have been make, made. I mean, do you think... Uh -huh. Sorry, carry on, Donovan. I, I mean, I think that, that actually there's something quite good uh, for Taiwan coming out of this uh, and, and certain other actions. Um, if, if you remember back uh, in the 1999, the 921 earthquake, um, China at the time blocked international agencies from... Uh, tried to block international flights over their territory uh, and tried to make all international aid organizations go through China. Meanwhile, there was, you know, there was thousands dead here in central Taiwan. 
And at the time, the world outcry over China's behavior was very muted. Uh, whereas now, it's the you know not being able to attend a health conference. There's no actual dead bodies on the ground that China's blocking, uh, but people now, you know, the United States used the term dismayed. Uh, the EU came out strongly in support of Taiwan, but curiously, 16 of 19 of the countries that Taiwan has diplomatic relations with uh, came forward, and I'm curious as to what those three that weren't, but I think that overall we're seeing a very strong upsurge internationally. I just read an article the other day from Canada, same sort of thing. Um, Australia standing up uh, to defend Qantas over the pull-down menu and listing Taiwan as a separate entity. Um, there seems to be a much stronger pushback now against China. But, I mean, do you think Beijing will actually care? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I think it really depends on how much the rest of the world starts to push back. I mean, obviously, with Donald Trump speaking out and calling them, you know, calling them on Orwellian nonsense, Australia pushed back. Um, and if China keeps pushing and these countries keep pushing back, then China may bend. But if they don't, they could actually end up with countries questioning their own one China principle and reminding the world that the one China principle doesn't actually say that Taiwan is part of China. It just acknowledges that China thinks it is. But of course, I mean, you just said there that, I mean, the U.S. pushed back and Australia pushed back when China demanded that companies based in those countries change, don't, do not change their websites to please Beijing, so to speak. But, I mean, obviously, Yankee dollar is at stake there, Nicola. Obviously, the World Health Organization, there's no Yankee dollar involved. So why should countries really care that much? I mean, yeah, it always comes down to money, really, doesn't it? Um, I, I think just to, to go back briefly to what Donovan said, it's not just a question of Beijing caring. I think it's, it's also a question of... Um, Taiwan's morale as well. When you do have countries pushing back against China, then I think that sends a really good signal to Taiwan. Uh, Beijing's always going to take the same point of view, but um, I think it's important for um, international the international community to show Taiwan that it does have some support and that you know Taiwan is trying to be a good player on the world stage. It is kind of trying to uphold UN principles and kind of do its bit and. I think that's just uh, it's it's good to send that that signal. But um, yeah, when when you talk about the dollar and money, I mean, countries don't support Taiwan enough because very often they're just looking out for their own ec economic interests, and that's that's a sad reality. And I just don't think that that's ever going to change. Which is the point of the websites? Of course, they are outraged that Beijing asked them to change the websites, but of course, the websites bring in revenue. Yeah. Whereas the absolutely. World Health, there's no revenue in the World Health Organization, so to speak. Uh, yeah, but it's it's not just about revenue. It's it's about politics, isn't it? It's about choosing your battles, and and everything's a delicate diplomatic dance, really. Um, you've, it's just about finding that balance about where to where to push back and and um, where to take China on, because this isn't going to be a a situation that's resolved any time soon. Um, you just have to take it step by step. But yeah, I mean, there is a, a huge level of hypocrisy as well in the way that people um, treat Taiwan, whether it's the business community or whether it's it's international governments. Um, and very often um, economics is or money is king and, and, and that's what comes first.
I think also people forget that you know we've kind of been this is a lot of this has been there done that, um, but this time I think you know Taiwanese getting much more sympathy. I mean, back in the '90s there was a period of time there when airlines had to set up subsidiaries to fly to China. I mean, China was I mean to Taiwan. China was trying to get all the international airlines to just simply not fly to Taiwan at all. Um, so I mean, you know, this has been we've kind of seen this before. Um, but one actually one interesting thing about this is that actually airlines all they really need to do is put in, on their pull down menu instead of country if they put country region, then China can't say anything. And it's a, it's such a minor little detail on the website, but China goes crazy over just simply the use of the word country. Right, of course, the health minister, Chen Shih-jong, did say, or rather his office said, they hope to arrange more meetings this year than last year, when, of course, Taiwan was also banned from attending the WHA. I believe they had 59 meetings with delegations from various countries last year, and they're looking at more this year. So a busy delegation there. Well, as long as they achieve something through the meetings. I mean, I think very often with the WHA and, and other kind of international bodies that these these big kind of congresses are, are kind of talking shops, really, aren't they? I mean, the real work is done during the year. Um, so that I think that should be the focus. Yes, it's all very symbolic, but, um, you know, everything isn't going to be decided during uh, that one assembly meeting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, why not? Like, uh, kind of, it's more about the contacts as well, isn't it? It's more about kind of establishing those relationships and, and good on good on them if they've got 59 meetings. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, those relationships could be very important. Um, uh, you know, we went through SARS here uh, back in 2003. Um, and, you know, the ability to keep the world... Uh, you know, keep the lines of communication open. Uh, you know, in a similar if if, if a cir- similar circumstance were to arise again, would be really important. I mean, obviously, it was Hong Kong, Taiwan were the epicenter, and Toronto and a few other places had some small outbreaks, but that was a particularly scary time. Right, we shall move on from health and move on to energy. And amid concerns over power supplies and controversy over Tai Power's proposal to open a new coal-fired power plant in New Taipei's Shenhao district, Premier William Lai has delivered a report on the government's energy policy to lawmakers. And Lai says the government remains confident they will be able to achieve its goal of making Taiwan a nuclear-free homeland by 2025 as it looks to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and also develop a thriving green energy sector. Now, the government's goal to achieving this is to reduce coal-fired energy supply to 30%, boost the supply of renewable energy to 20%, and generate 50% of the island's energy needs with natural gas. And that's a pretty lofty goal. And needless to say, there's an ongoing tug-of-war between environmentalists and industry about how best to achieve this. And I recently spoke with Tim Ferry of AmCham's Topics magazine about the issues at stake and the chances of Taiwan achieving the goal. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, Gavin. So how far along is the government to achieving this goal? Well, the government is uh, not very far along at this point. Um, the, uh, uh, well, in terms of um, offshore wind, you're talking about 3,500 megawatts of installed capacity by 2025, and so far they've got eight. So you could say they're, they're a little bit behind on that track. Um, in terms of solar, Right now, they're looking at 20 gigawatts of installed solar capacity. Right now, they've got about 1.9 gigawatts. So they've got a, a long way to catch up. 
And of course, there's lots of controversy between environmentalists and industry, of course, are surrounding this whole let's make Taiwan a nuclear free zone by 2025. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, industry is very concerned about uh, the reliability and the affordability of the power supply. And, um, and there's also uh, quite a bit of controversy within the environmental movement about how best to, uh, to achieve both a nuclear-free homeland as well as reducing carbon emissions. What are the government going to do with the nuclear power plants? Because obviously decommissioning a nuclear power plant is not free. Oh, no, no. Well, they, they, they are funded on that. I don't think the, the money side of that is a, is a big concern um, because it has been funded. The decommissioning costs have been funded all along. So there, there's already a, a decommissioning fund established. And uh, I don't think it's really a matter of money in terms of just what to do with 40 years of nuclear fuel, spent fuel. Right, I mean, what could they do with this? Of course, there's been controversy this week about where the government turned around and said, well, we're looking at the six municipalities to dump it in. Yeah, it is, it is a huge question. Um, there's, uh, currently, all of this fuel is being stored in the, uh, the spent fuel storage tanks, the water tanks, right? Those tanks are, aimed, are designed for about five years to hold the waste for about five years to let it cool down before it's sent to an interim storage and dry cask and then ultimately a final storage which uh, nobody has yet figured out. So, so you're talking about five years. Uh, they're, they're designed for a five-year storage, and they've been holding spent fuel for about almost 40 years for most of them. Right, of course, there's been calls, obviously, to move to natural gas over coal-fired power plants. But how, how is the movement going towards natural gas? Well, the natural gas is uh, constrained by the, um, the terminal capacity. All right, um, natural gas, is, of course, has to be, uh, to be shipped and to be stored. It has to be uh, uh, stored at very, very cold, extreme cold temperatures. So it's a very uh, cost-intensive, and, and there needs to be, you know, it's very technologically uh, intensive. And Taiwan currently does not have enough uh, receiving capacity. So basically, they're right now, the current use of natural gas is at its maximum. It's actually exceeding its maximum. And, uh, and in order to, to, uh, uh, to increase the amount of, uh, natural gas in the power supply, they need to increase the um, terminal storage, and that is, of course, its own controversy. Right. And, of course, it's a lot of work. Uh, yeah, sure, sure, and it takes, takes years. It takes years to develop this kind of capacity. It's, a, it's very uh, specialized materials. The storage tanks uh, require special materials that are not made in Taiwan. They're, they're made in, in, like, Japan, and they're, they're, it's, just, it's, it's a very intensive uh, endeavor, and it really needs to start happening now in order for the 2025 goal to be met. But it is not, as you know, of course, that the um, Taoyuan uh, planned third LNG terminal is being held up, um, according to environmental concerns, over the, uh, the reefs there. So, um, and if that isn't started shortly, they're probably not going to meet that 2025 goal. And, of course, moving on to the wind power, of course, Zhanghua County has become the centre of Taiwan's wind-generating area. I mean, do you think it'll stay in Zhanghua, or could they move it elsewhere? And there's been talk of Penghu as well, of course. Well, um, yeah, offshore wind is... They're actually... I mean, the windmills themselves will be, be far out into the Taiwan Strait, something I can't recall exactly, but, I mean, you're talking about, like, 50 kilometres out. So Changhua is just where, the, uh, where the, the power lines, the transmission lines, will come in, right? And, it's, and 
Uh, will Chungwa be, be, well, I, I guess the county has made itself um, very amenable to, uh, to offshore wind, but um, uh, I think those are, it, it probably would. I think the, um, the, bigger, the bigger issues facing offshore wind is just getting the, that development. These are, these are huge infrastructure projects, and getting, I mean, you're talking about 600 windmills out in the Taiwan Straits by 2025 to meet that, to meet that goal. And that these are—it's just a—it's a tremendous challenge. I mean, that would, would that be would that make Taiwan one of the most wind power-driven countries? It would. It would. It would certainly advance that, and it would. It could potentially uh, turn Taiwan into a a uh, wind an offshore wind industry, uh, get, provide another industry for Taiwan, and um, which would be very exciting. But um, but still, it's going to take time, and I think that's what people need to recognize that these are. These are huge projects um, that, that will take a lot of time. All right, with obviously seven years to go until 2025. I mean, if you had to say how far along the government is and the chances of it actually achieving this by that date, marks out of 10. Well, okay, how far along is it? Is, is, is 10, 10 the good side? 10's the good side, 10's yeah. 10's the good side, okay. Uh, I'd say they're probably about a one or two at this point. Um, and their chances of, I, it, it, if they do it, it will be a, a really uh, a tremendous achievement if they are able to do it. Um, doesn't look promising, but that's not to say it's impossible. Let's give it a five. That was me in conversation with Tim Ferry of AmCham's Topics magazine. And European Union officials will visit Taiwan once again in September to review ongoing efforts to curb illegal fishing practices by the island's Far Seas fleet before deciding whether to lift the yellow card. Of course, the EU placed Taiwan on the yellow card warning list in late 2015 for insufficient cooperation in combating illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. EU officials have visited the country every six months to inspect progress made by local authorities since then, and the most recent of those in inspection tours was in March. Now, according to the head of the European Economic and Trade Office here in Taipei, Taiwan has made significant progress over the past two years, but she said that more needs to be done before the EU will consider lifting the yellow card. And the head of the Trade Office is also warning that Taiwan needs to show that there is a comprehensive infrastructure in place and that it's actually enforcing the rules before the yellow card status can be changed. So we've talked about this before, Nicola. I mean, the problem is, of course, Taiwan's fishing far seas fleet especially has a rather bad rap. Well, I don't think Taiwan is alone in, in that problem. I think most uh, fleets around the world have a rather bad rap when it comes to what goes on in, in open waters. Um, yeah, obviously, it's a problem. Obviously, it's uh, something that has to be tackled um, everywhere. Um, the way that... Uh, global fishing fleets or um, catching fish is unsustainable. Um, there's been a lot of complaints of Chinese fleets in Indonesian waters as well. Um, and it does have to be brought under control and curbed. I mean, otherwise, there's going to be huge environmental, there already is a huge environmental impact. What I would say is that 
you know, I think the EU can be quite hypocritical as well because they have a lot of um, bad practices on their own doorsteps. Um, if you speak to Scottish fishermen, I'm sure they would have a, a very um, strong view on the French and Spanish fleets, for example. And and when it comes down to it, fisheries is one of the most is one of the hottest topics in international politics. I mean, it sounds really nerdy, but just like the horse trading that goes on and and um, all of the just the the financial interests motivating it is is just um, quite out of control. I think. And of course, the local. Fish- Fishing associations, Donovan, have actually blamed the European Union. They've got the European Union's given Taiwan a yellow card solely to protect its own fishing interests. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, that might be possible. Um, I mean, my suspicion is is that there are certain people within the within the EU government and and. Uh, parliament that that do genuinely care about the issue and then of course there are people in the fishery department departments as nicola was saying there in, in in these individual countries who really you know they're there to protect their their own interests and their own uh you know their own fishing fleet um and it's a real tricky one because of course all these all, you know all these uh fleets operate in international waters they're hard to track um you know they're you know so it, it's a it's it's a very difficult, you know, when your self-interest is to catch as many fish as possible, but the overall picture is the, it's, a very, it's a shrinking pie, but the people who are doing it are doing it in the commons, in the, you know, in the, in the international waters. It, it becomes really hard to manage, hard to track, hard to control. Uh, and as, as Nicola pointed out, I mean, it, it, this is pretty much every fishing fleet on the planet. I mean, the Spanish memorably called the Canadians pirates, you know, and Canadians don't normally have a bad rap around the world. Well, of course, one of the things that Taiwan is doing, it they say they're, they're going to post more fisheries administration officials in foreign port areas where Taiwan Far Seas Fleet fishing vessels operate. How is that going to help? That was my question to you. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I suppose that means that they can go on to the boats in those ports and count and look at what's on the boats. Um, but, you know, I, I think the the fishing fleets will very quickly figure out where these people are, and unless they put them in every single port on the planet, they it, it'd be pretty easy to avoid them, I think. That's one of the problems here, Nicola, of course. Taiwan fast seas fleet fishing vessels are being accused of not reporting all their catches. Yeah, I, I'm, that may well be the case. Again, I'd go to, you know, back to to the point that I I doubt most far seas fleets report all of their catches. Um, and I think you know Donovan raises a he he raises a good issue that it does need to be. Um, we do need to look deeper into this topic to see what European interests are um, at stake here as well, and whether there is a strong lobby um, in Brussels. Um, that is motivating this. I mean, it may well be kind of genuine environmental concerns. Having worked in, I've covered the European Parliament um, for a few years. I started out there as a journalist and the fishing lobby was one of the most powerful lobbies um, at work in in the European Parliament and the European Commission. Um, So, you know, maybe Taiwan should send its own inspectors to the EU and see if EU Farsi's fleets are also um, uh, reporting all of their catches. (laughs) 
Interesting. That would be very interesting. I'm sure the EU would love that, wouldn't they? They would really. They'd be greeted. It's only fair. They'd be greeted with open arms. They'd be. They'd be treated as nicely as Nigel Farage is treated. In the European he was Park. actually on the Fisheries Committee. I don't think he did very much, but yeah. Doesn't that sum it up? Anyway, on that note, we'll take a short break, um, but we will right back after these commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and the Tourism Bureau here in Taiwan has announced that it's studying the feasibility of putting a cap on the number of visitors allowed to travel to Orchid Island, Green Island, and Shaoliocho. Now, according to the bureau's director general Zhou Yonghui, the move comes as residents of some of Taiwan's more confined travel destinations are urging their local governments to tackle issues such as a huge build-up of garbage, as well as excessive power and water usage due to the large number of mainly domestic. Tourists who flock to the small outlying islands. Now, Joe says that his office is looking to find a balance between ecological conservation, tourism development, and quality of tourism, as it seeks opinions from local residents, tourism experts, and local governments on the matter. Now, interestingly enough, there are already some parts of Taiwan that, in fact, have a cap on the number of visitors, and those include Dardan Island in Jingmen County, Elan County's Turtle Island or Guishan Dao, and the Yerlio. Geo Park in Taipei. Now, obviously, while certain residents and certain local governments have said yes, we should cap the tourism. Some people are against this, and they argue that well, the tourists don't come all the time. It's usually at weekends and at public holidays. So maybe the government could stagger them. I mean, Nicola, do you think this is possible to cap tourism and make everybody happy? No. Is the short answer to that? I think.、Um, I think it's necessary. I th- look. I mean, look at what's happening in、uh, beautiful parts of the world, in, especially in Asia. If you look at the Philippines and, and Boracay, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but this resort that has just been has become completely overwhelmed. Or there's also the the very famous beach that was in the beach film in Thailand.、Uh, I can't remember the name, but. You know they have they have come to the point where their ecosystem is on the verge of collapse before they have put in caps on tourists because they've just been absolutely overwhelmed, and you don't want some of Taiwan's most beautiful spots to get to that point where、um, they're just their infrastructure is completely collapsing and that their natural beauty is being destroyed. I think you have to be sensible about it, and you you have to、um, put some measures in place. Um, to prevent that from happening, and people, some people are bound to be disappointed. But you know, sometimes life is just disappointing. Well, I'm glad that the government here is is not doing it the way that Duterte did is doing it in,、uh, with Boracay and just randomly out of the blue one day saying, "Oh, we're completely shutting down the island."、Um, I mean, I'm glad that they're the, you know the, they're studying it. They're going to consult with people, and if they put in、um, caps that. You know, hopefully it will be something that'll be sort of discussed by you know with everyone involved, and you know it'll be reasonable,、uh, so that you know they also don't have a collapse in the tourism business because I'm sure a lot of people、uh, in these areas rely on it for their livelihoods.、Um, but yeah, as Nicholas says, I mean, you know, it, it may make sense to to put in some controls to keep it uh, um, from uh, you know free, you know from being totally overwhelmed, and of course the, the water and the power usage. Uh, and particularly in the in offshore islands, I know that getting energy and water is problematic and expensive. 
But of course, all this comes as the government is actually trying to boost tourism, both domestic and international. Yeah, well, I mean, with Orchid Island in particular, the way to, to make sure that you get less people is to remind people in the tourism, you know, in the, in the brochures that they store nuclear waste there. You could do, but that, I mean, well, that would definitely bring the tourist numbers down. It's one option, Donovan, but I thought they could do it. There could be a more polite way to do it, maybe, Nicola. I, well, I think there's a wider issue, really, of how Taiwan sells itself. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I, I think the, the tourist board does need to have a rethink both on how it projects um, Taiwan's attractions abroad and also just on the, the actual tourist infrastructure that is in place currently. Because, um, you know, if if you look at somewhere like Thailand that has, like, you know, millions of tourists every year, that may or may not be a good thing. But it, it has really invested heavily on building good resorts, um, having kind of good infrastructure for tourists. In Taiwan, it seems still very much catered to um, Chinese tour groups who want one particular thing. I think if you want to attract people from different countries, you just have to put a bit more thought into how to um, improve uh, your resorts or, uh, you know, your hotels or just the way you do things and and I, I just thought that there was a recent um, recently there was a very interesting debate that was sparked off by um, the tricky Taipei blogger um, who had looked at, at how um, Taiwan was being advertised abroad and it was very very amateur that these were kind of contracts that had been given out to external bodies in New York in London who um, ostensibly by the Taiwanese um, tourist authorities and, and they were just, you know, there were a lot of spelling mistakes, there were a lot of very bizarre messages like, you know, if, if you come to Taiwan, you will, you're likely not to get mugged. I mean, how is that um, projecting the best of a very beautiful country? Hey, you couldn't say that about going to Scotland, could you? Oh, I think that's a bit unfair, really. But it's not really, it's not, you know, it's not exactly um, something that you're going to be looking for in a tourist destination, is it? I mean, you, you want to know about the beaches or the mountains or the museums, you, you know, whether or not you're going to be mugged as a secondary consideration, I would suggest. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, 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 with the domestic tourism, which is, I think, what's overwhelming the islands, um, there's actually a quieter way that they could do it, and that is to raise uh, the rates on the uh, flights and ferries uh, on the weekends and during holidays. And that would probably bring some of the numbers down. That would be a quieter way to do it. That's a possibility. In fact, choppy seas as well. I was once on a ferry going to Orchid Island with a photographer friend of mine. And we hit very, very rough water. Now, the ferry was making a stop at Green Island before it went on to Orchid Island. And by the time we hit Green Island, 95% of the people on the ferry actually decided to get off the ferry at Green Island. So by the time we actually got to Orchid Island, there was only a handful of people on the ferry. You know, I've never been to either island. And the reason is because by the time I got to every single time that I planned to go, I got to Taidong and there was a typhoon. Every single time. This is about five times now, I believe. Um, it's so I've had terrible luck in trying to get to either island. Now, that or you didn't check the Weather Bureau. 
There you go. Yeah, well, you but know. But, of course, it did limit you traveling there, didn't it? It did, so it did. So they just need to create more typhoons. There we go. There's the solution. That's, that sounds like an easy solution. <laughs> yes. Can I, can I just question, though, that you're, you said there was a cap on JDO Geopark? Because yeah. it just seems like a madhouse every every time I've been there. No, they had to cap it. Several years ago, they were realising that people were touching the Queen's head. <laughs> and it was, they, were, they were concerned that it would actually collapse. Right. But, of course, the most successful cap is actually Turtle Island. Mm. You have to actually apply to go there. Okay. Yeah, that's true in the mountains. A yeah, lot of areas yeah. in the, the high mountains. Yeah, you have to get the hiking permit, and then they won't issue them for periods of the year. Right, we'll move on from tourism and talk about something completely different, and that being China's insistence that the world view Taiwan as a part of it and that the ROC flag be removed from everything and everywhere. Well, it took a rather noxious turn this week when artwork by young children was the target of what has, thanks to the White House, become known globally as Beijing's Orwellian nonsense. Now, the Rockhampton Regional Council in the Australian state of Queensland decided it was the right thing to do when it covered over an ROC flag that had been painted on a statue of a bull which was put on display for a beef industry event there. Now the statue was created by students at the North Rockhampton State School and it featured various national flags in the shape of fish and the ROC flag was painted by two Taiwan born students as part of a project aimed at celebrating the cultural diversity of the city's community but oh no god forbid should cultural diversity ever involve the ROC title or flag as the city council altered the work to, in its words, reflect the Australian government's policy of not recognising Taiwan as a country. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it is looking into the matter. It's also saying that politics should not interfere with cultural events in response to the painting over of the flag. Now, while I fully understand why a local council or central government, for that matter, may opt to remove the ROC flag from official documentation, of course, this was a children's art project. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing's just completely pathetic, isn't it? But well, what do you say when, um, when petty bureaucrats get in the way? Um, I mean, what's not clear to me here is, is who did, did um, the authorities, the Queensland authorities, preempt um, Chinese objections or were they actually, did they face Chinese objections? That's, that's the billion dollar question because no one's, it's not the Queensland state authorities, apparently it was the local rock town. Yeah, the rock little regional council. Okay, mm. yeah. Well, and it appears, I mean, from, from what I've seen, um, it appears that this was self-censorship. This was, this was uh, I haven't seen anywhere any mention where, where the Chinese government or embassy actually piped up on their own to, to do this. So essentially, they bullied so much within Australia and so consistently and so long that now you get little local council bureaucrats are so brainwashed and so cowed by China that they'll, you know, they'll deface a child's artwork. I mean, it, it's, it, it's kind of, it's almost monstrous. It, it's really kind of scary how much China has managed to brainwash people. And so, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Trump, but I'll give him credit for calling out China on this and calling attention to it. And this is, I think this is really quite important, that when the American president comes out and calls us Orwellian nonsense, which it is, uh, and this is, this is exactly the, like a perfect example of what he's saying. Um, and so I'm really glad that he called it out on a world stage. Um, and I'm hoping that more, you know, more people around the world 
because I noticed that this individual case got actually surprisingly strong international coverage. Um, you know, I saw it in at least six or seven international outlets, and you know, and, and it really goes to show what kind of Orwellian nonsense China is up to, and and, and so I'm really glad that you know, that it's being covered and that there's sympathy for Taiwan uh, out there. Yeah, no, it should be covered and then they should be called out for it. Um, I mean, Trump is in a more powerful position, I would say, than this kind of small local authority, um, which, again... You think? It was, yeah, I hope. But, you know... It, it, again, it's 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 about the politics, but also about the economics. You know, from what I've read, that um, Queensland is a big beef producing um, area of Australia. That China is one of its largest export markets. I mean, we we don't really know what motivated um, these bureaucrats to cover up the flags. It may have been something to do with 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 beef exports. I'm speculating here, um, but You're probably right. I mean, generally, it does come down to financial interests as we were talking about before and and maybe perhaps they were worried that local companies could suffer but it's it's worrying if this was self-censorship I think that's almost you know as if not more worrying than China kind of stepping on on a local authority in Australia. My question is of course it was a children's artwork and all children draw things it's up to them they can draw whatever they want to draw but I mean if a child had drawn maybe a fl- an imaginary flag for teddy bear boo boo land would the local authority have painted over that because it doesn't recognize teddy bear boo boo land. Well, you know, you have to you have to you have to distinguish between the the the, the, the Teddy Boo Boo Land principle and policy, and uh, that's the most important thing when deciding on that one, I think. And whether Teddy eats beef or not. <laughs> yes. Sadly, Teddy's dead. Anyway, finally tonight, two of Taiwan's cities have been ranked in the top 100 list of the world's best cities for students. Well, there we go. Taipei ranks as the 20th best city to study in, while Shenzhou placed 73rd in the QS Best Student Cities Rankings Survey. Now, the UK-based education network bases its rankings on university rankings, student mix, employer activity, desirability, affordability and student views. And according to QS analysis, Taiwan's universities have been steadily climbing to greater global prominence in recent years, establishing the country's capital as one of Asia's leading higher education hubs. Now, Taipei scored big for relatively low tuition fees and living costs. It scored big in the student view category, showing that students enjoyed their experiences here and are often keen to stay after graduation. That, according to the analysis, while Shinzu also received a high score for affordability. So, Donovan, if you were an 18-year-old student, would you consider coming to Taipei to study or possibly Shinzu? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I got here when I was 19, just one month after my 18th birthday. So, yes, <laughs> I did it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I kind of regret not um, learning Chinese when I was a student. I went to Austria and learned German instead, which I haven't really used for most of my career. So, um, yeah, why not? I mean... <laughs> I'm sure Taipei um, is, a, is a very good student experience. Any of students I meet seem to be happy. What threw me, though, was the affordability bit, because London topped the list. Yeah, that was the, mm. part that, the, the reason why I didn't take the, the, the whole thing very seriously, is because, uh, you know, London is, is, is a city where basically you have to sell your, your firstborn to be able to afford to live there. And somehow it was top of the list, and I just sort of shook my head and went, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know about this. Yeah, I think we've, we've spoken about this before. 
before, haven't we, about this, the science behind these surveys and whether they actually mean anything or whether it's more clickbait territory. And I'm, I'm kind of erring towards the latter. Yeah, or, or it's a good survey for rich people. Yeah. Tokyo was number two. <laughs> Another cheap city. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder what students they asked, whether, you know, they were kind of like the children of, of kind of wealthy scions or, um, you know, people who, who didn't actually have to pay their, their uh, living costs themselves. Melbourne was number three. Montreal was number four. There you go. Paris, number five. Munich, number six. Berlin, seven. Zurich, eight. Sydney, nine. And Seoul in South Korea rounded out the top ten. Hmm. I yeah. thought Seoul was a bit of a surprise to me, but never mind. Yeah, yeah, this 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 doesn't seem like a... It, I, I think Nick was right. I think this is a clickbait. Beijing was 26, continuing with the clickbait, and Shanghai was 29th. So you go, Taipei was more popular than Beijing. Yeah, well, uh, that's not surprising. But Glasgow wasn't in the list, so clearly it's all rubbish. <laughs> now, Edinburgh, or Vancouver, for that matter. <laughs> Ed- Edinburgh was, though. Oh, well, it's completely biased then, isn't it? <laughs> Anyway, that's where we'll leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thank you for having me. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And uh, great being here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.